for uh, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are very similarly. They, they follow a very uh, similar path of the, of the way they lay the narrative out. John overlaps with all that, but gives us some special emphases or includes some special details. And uh, actually this morning we'll be looking at, at one of those kinds of details. But we're in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, the text is in the, the order of worship. Before we read this, I want to ask, I guess, kind of a strange question. What if, as you were walking in here this morning, you saw Jesus physically, literally? visibly saw him, and he asked you this question, why are you going in there? And let's say that you gave a good, you know, safe answer to worship. What if he said why? Uh, what, what if every kind of southern Sunday school parent answer that came out of your mouth, he kept digging about why? Why would you want to do that? Or picture that uh, you're alone at home, and let's say that you get out your Bible, or maybe you just got one for the first time, and you're going to read it. And uh, what if Jesus visibly appeared to you? And what if he asked you, why are you reading that? What, what do you think you're going to find in there? What would you say? And the reason I ask those questions, and I don't expect that to happen to me or, or to anyone here, but the reason I ask it is that not just in the passage that we're about to read, but, but in numerous places in the Gospels, Jesus will come to someone or someone will come to him, and outwardly they're, they're doing everything seemingly right. And his response will be to look past appearances and to ask, what, what are you doing? Like, for instance, uh, it's a favorite passage of mine. There's an episode in the Gospels where this young man, probably the age of a lot of the young men in this room, he comes, it says he's affluent, it says he's a ruler. He comes to Jesus, he seeks him out, and when he comes to Jesus, he falls on his knees right in his presence and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I'm telling you, as a pastor, that's what you call an open door for ministry. I mean, that's an open door you could drive a truck through. And it seems like what Jesus could have said was just, Well, just believe in me, and you will. And Jesus gives these odd, probing answers. I uh, had an email exchange with uh, a member of our church, a friend of mine, who was, who was talking about, it just seems odd that when Jesus could give a clear answer, he'll probe, or he'll say something terse, or he'll be very firm. Now, in this text that we're about to read, you have the appearance of a dream scenario. You have the appearance of throngs of people turning out now that the real Messiah has come to hear him and to follow him and to hang on to his words. And Jesus, with this sort of laser beam sight, begins asking questions and making statements. 
And I would say this before we read this passage. The more familiar you are with him, the more you've grown up doing this kind of thing, the more you'll need to hear this. We all need to hear it, but especially you. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Skipping down to verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, When did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do? to be doing the works of God. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So they said to Him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. 
For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, your words are more precious than gold, and they're sweeter than honey, honey from the comb. So enable us to treasure and taste the sweetness of your word. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I hope you all had a good Halloween last night. The Habigs did. Um, We had two army soldiers, um, a purple fairy. I'll let you figure out which of my children were which, if you know them. Um, We had a black cat and a 50s milkman. It was a good night, uh, despite the rain. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard any of uh, Jerry Seinfeld's stand-up material about Halloween and candy. He actually came out with a book about this. Um, a few years ago, he said that for the first 10 years of his life, the only lucid thought that he could form was get the candy. And that that really was his worldview and what drove him in life was get the candy. Friends, family, school, nothing but obstructions to getting more candy. And he said, the first time I heard about Halloween, it was like, it was, in, it was too much information to process. He said it was like I, I was listening to my parents talk and I went, wait, what? What, what are y'all talking about? What? People are doing what? People are giving away candy? Who's giving away candy? Everyone we know? I, I want to be a part of this. What do I do? T- tell me just, I can wear that. I can do that. And he says, you know, I said, I'll wear whatever I have to wear. I'll do whatever I have to do to get the candy from these fools who so stupidly give it away. And, and, you know, I saw evidence of that last night and this morning when uh, this is like 7.45, my daughter was asking for her Skittles after breakfast. Um, now, we laugh, you know, watching children and think, how can you be so candy-minded? You know, how after you have five pounds of candy, can you want five and a half pounds of, of candy? How can you want it before breakfast? Uh, you know, we can, we can laugh at that, kind of scoff, you know, and, and even look down on it, but um, everybody's hungry. Uh, there are those of us in this room who are so hungry that maybe at one point in our lives we said, man, if I ever meet that special someone... I'm just going to give them absolute undivided attention. And we met that person, and we cannot hear them when we walk in for the work we're thinking about or the emails that we're checking or the phone calls we're returning. Always wanted that person, cannot hear them. That is what the Bible calls hunger. 
Everybody in here has experienced this kind of hunger. You may, you may be feeling it acutely uh, even this morning. In this text, what I want us to see is Jesus standing in front of a really massive group of people. I'm going to talk about this more in a second, but when, when, when every chair in this room is filled, there are about 400 people in here. Picture something along the lines of 50 of these, this room, 50, 50 sets of this room packed out to hear one man. I want to see two things. Number one is this, is that Jesus sees beyond the appearance. He sees beyond the appearance. But I also want you to hear this. Jesus cares for the real condition. He sees beyond the appearance, but he cares for the real condition. All right, now first off, what's the appearance? This is an amazing account. This, This is, by the way, the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. You get lots of overlap. You get ones that are mentioned maybe only in one, but this is the only miracle Jesus did that's recorded in all four Gospels. But in John, you get more attention given to the aftermath, the follow-up. You might say the debriefing to this miracle. Now, what's the appearance? It's very encouraging outwardly. First off, the number. All right, you already get this in the second verse. It says, a large crowd was following him. In verse 5, it says, Jesus lifts up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, and it ends up giving a number. And the other Gospels are very specific about this. And this is important to note that you see in this that these are accounts of eyewitnesses. The number is not 5,000 humans. It says there are 5,000 males. So what you might have had was upward of 20,000 people. Again, take this room, every chair filled, multiply that by 50. It is a giant group of people. Picture something that looks like Fall for Greenville or some big downtown event where the street is just loaded. That's who's coming. Very encouraging. And you also get this. You have this confession that the people make. Look look in verse 14. It's almost like a little mini creed that that jumps out of them. After Jesus has fed them with the bread and the fish, it says in verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, we don't know how he did it, how the process worked, but they knew there's no food in here. There's a giant amount of us. And it says that not only did they eat, everybody ate as much as they wanted. They're filled, and there's leftover food. It says that when they saw the sign, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Okay, so you've got this huge number of people following Jesus. You've got them saying something that's actually right. And what you may not know is that they're saying something very Jewish, In the books of Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 18, there was a famous prediction. If you grew up Jewish, especially in, you know, ground central uh, Judea, you would have known this promise. And that was, in Deuteronomy 18, the promise was that God one day would send 
another prophet, not a prophet, the prophet, a definitive sort of prophet. And when he speaks, he will speak my very word. You need to listen to him the way that you would listen to me. And what they're saying is, he's come. He, he's the prophet with a capital P. There's one other thing. Look at how proactive this crowd is. This verse accidentally got left out of the bulletin, my fault. But verse 15 in John 6 says this, that this group was going to force Jesus to be a king. They were going to make him king by force. Now, if you get 5,000 males, then all the other people... I mean, you've got enough people to look like a militia. It's Passover. Passover in Judea probably felt like July 4th. And here's why I say that. What do we celebrate at July 4th? It's when, you know, the super... Thank you for answering that. Uh, When, you know, the superpower of of the earth, Great Britain, had us as as colonies, and we told, you know, the superpower that that we're, we're gone, we're free, and actually pulled it off. And in a similar way, but in a much bigger deal in their redemptive history... They were slaves. The Israelites were slaves of the global superpower, Egypt. Definitive superpower. And God brought them out. This little ragtag group of people brought them out. They celebrated that at Passover. That feeling was at a high during Passover in Judea. They're going to make him king by force. And then there's some intervening verses that I left out. In those intervening verses, Jesus went to another place... He went across this lake, and they went and they found him. And from what it sounds like, all of them went and sought him out. Okay, so let's pull back. What do we have here? Upward of 20,000 people following the right man, saying the right things when he goes somewhere else, seeking him out to go find him. Now, I'm telling you, if, if, if they had put out newsletters in this day, the disciples would have taken pictures of this and put it in their newsletter. And you would have had photographs of this crowd and, you know, like little block quotes of, I ate everything I wanted and more. Jesus provided it. Uh, That would be your constant contact marketing bombardment to let people know this is for real and it's catching fire. What's the problem? The problem is that Jesus Christ, both then and now, has this uncanny way of looking into you and knowing that we can be doing outwardly the right thing for the wrong reason. He cares about that, but he's not deceived. See, I don't know if you caught this, but you get this talk about, hey, now Moses, when, when the people, you know, when they left Egypt and they were out in the wilderness and there's no stores and they don't have their own fields, Moses caused bread to fall from heaven to feed them. So what can you do? Now, I don't want to insert something into Jesus' mind that was not there, but it's very ironic that they chose that example. You know why? In the book of Exodus, the first time manna showed up, you know why it showed up? These Israelites had just walked through a sea on dry land. A sea 
had parted for them. The scriptures don't record that as a metaphor. They record it as true history. A sea parts, they walk through on dry ground, the superpower army follows them, God brings the sea back together, annihilates the military, the superpower's military. By night, God appears to them as a, as a column, a tower of fire to warm them. During the day, He's a column of cloud, a pillar of cloud to shade them. Now, you would think if you saw that, that you would just never, ever uh, struggle with doubt. You would say, you know, there's some things I doubt, but not the existence of God. And I don't doubt that He's going to take care of me. It says that when they walked through the sea on dry land, they spontaneously burst into song. And I kind of wondered, how can people spontaneously burst into song until I've watched my children when it snows? People can spontaneously burst into song that they have not written yet. The people of Israel, maybe close to a million people, burst into song and they talk about He has triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider He threw into the sea, high water mark of saying the right thing, celebrating God, the next chapter, Exodus 16, they are saying, He brought us out here to die. When we were in Egypt, we sat around containers of food. We've got nothing out here. God sends manna. That's why they had manna. Very interesting that, that, you know, again, if we had a photograph of that image on the other side of the Red Sea, it would look like orthodoxy, spiritual health, people getting it, spiritually getting traction, lostness largely. Confusion, doubt. What is Jesus wanting? What what are they not getting? I mean, it's something that we don't get very often, and it's this. It's very easy to have a mental map of what you're wanting Jesus to do for you and to follow Him to get Him to do it. I mean, when we hear bread, especially in our cultural context, we hear well, some of us, you know, carbs. Okay, you, you can't read it that way, okay? In other words, it's not like to stay off the bread and just kind of go with the salads. That's not the world they're living in. Bread was the staple. It really was more nutritious and better for you. But bread was the staple of what you ate. So much so that even today you don't hear it as much as you used to. Some, you know, people will call money bread, it was what you needed. Jesus looks at this crowd who's even come, walked a distance to find him to say, you're coming here because you ate. You ate all you wanted. And let me, let me ask this question this morning. Why do you do Christian activity? If you do Christian activity, you do some because you're here. This may be abnormal, but you did some this morning but it may be very normal. What do you want? Do you you want to meet someone? Is that the real desire? Is Jesus, I'm going to follow you so that you will lead me to the person that you know is the right person for me. So Jesus, I will follow you to meet that someone. And it's as if Jesus is looking back saying, that someone... 
Who is that someone that would satisfy your heart? What, what do you want? You want good kids? Why do you want good kids? What do you mean by good kids? Do you mean kids who are healthy and who do well and do not embarrass you? Why do you want that? So I won't stress? You want good kids so you won't stress. There's nothing self-centered about that. What do you want? And what begins to hit you is that it is very possible, very possible, take it from experience, to have what we could call Christless Christianity. It's very possible to do the actions of orthodoxy, to do the actions of Christianity and not go after Him. They are coming after Him, but at some level they are not coming after Him. They are coming after bread. And He says, what are you coming here for? And that's the second thing. He sees beyond the appearances, but He cares for the real condition. How do you see that? And, and I want you to hear two things here. Number one, Jesus does care about physical, tangible things. Who's the one who looked up at this giant crowd and said, they did not pack food. There is not enough food. Who said that? The disciples? Look in verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. And then look at verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. How much food can 20,000 people eat? A lot. Again, I, I started thinking about, all right, if it was 20,000 people, and it takes, I don't know, $2.50 to make a little snack pack. That's $50,000. Everybody had more than enough. And, and, and I would add this too. When it says that he took the loaves, he broke them, he gave thanks, and gave them out, that little bundle of verbs should remind us of something. That there was another time where Jesus is with a group of people who seem to get it and are assuring Him, we get it. And He washes their feet and He gives them bread and wine when He knows that they're going to abandon Him. And what does that tell us? Jesus cares for people, period. He cares about people, period. Our call to worship said what? Very intentional. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. That is not figuratively true. It's so true that when he became a man, it was literally manifested. If you've been affected by the economic downturn, if you're without a job, you're sick, you're hurting, you're chemically imbalanced. Does he care? Yes, he cares. 
He cares. You can entrust yourself to Him to do as He sees fit. But He cares about the part of us that we tend to neglect, and that's the unseen. He cares about the spiritual condition. How do you see that? Look in verse 31. I want you to listen for an expression that keeps reoccurring. Verse 31, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never, never thirst. Look in verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And think about it this way. It is our tendency to pick out the thing that's going to make my hunger go away, a significant other, or for my spouse to change in these particular ways, or to feel better, or for more income, or for the job to change, or for the loneliness to subside, that we kind of lock in on it and say, if okay, Jesus, He has all authority in heaven and on earth. If He'll just fix that, then I'll know that He's real, and He really does give abundant life. I mean, did you catch, guys, if you want to mirror into what we are like, did you catch that this text begins in verse 2 saying, they saw the signs of all the people He was healing, and they came to Him. And then in verse 14, they saw the sign of Him feeding all these people with no food, except for those loaves and fishes. And they said, he's the prophet. And then it says in verse 30, what sign do you perform so that we can know that you're for real, that that you're really from God? And it's easy to throw stones at that. We do that all the time. Yes, you came down from heaven. You lived the life that none of us can live. And you took the curse that we deserve to take. But when do I get a boyfriend? When do I get more income? When do I feel better because I am tired of feeling bad? What is the deal? And Jesus essentially says this, I do not come to earth to dispense a gift from the Heavenly Father. I am the gift. I'm the gift. There is a God. He lives in heaven and He sent you a gift. But it's not the thing that you carved out that's going to be make the hunger and the thirst go away. I am the gift. Let me end by saying this. There's a warning here. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, again, sometimes by our standards, He does the worst PR, the worst sales. He tells you all the reasons why this, this, almost, this won't work. 
But in the most famous sermon in the world, the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and easy is the way that leads to destruction. And those who find it, those who travel it, are many. But narrow is the gate, and hard is the way that leads to life. And those that find it are few. And you know how you see that in this episode? This is not in the bulletin. It says that after Jesus said all these things, I'm the bread, He finally says, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. John 6, verse 66, it says, After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. And what I want to exhort you this morning to is this. The gate is narrow, and the way of Jesus is, by His own account, hard. But it is the way of life. And I would exhort you, if he really is the capital P prophet, and he is, if he is the fulfillment of that promise, listen to what he's saying. But I want to say this too. It may be that you are, for the first time, or on the threshold of the first time, believing in him. But it may be, as is the case with many of you, that you have known him and believed in him for years maybe decades, and even though maybe you know that you're not supposed to say this out loud, you may be thinking deep down, okay, I'm torn, because on the one hand, I believe everything that he's saying in this text, but by the same token, I do believe in him, and I do feel hunger, and I do feel thirst, and he said that I wouldn't. What do we do with that? And Just in closing, here's what I would say. Again, take it from experience. Examine your heart because it may be that if you feel profoundly dissatisfied right now as a Christian, it may very well be that you are doing what all of us fall into, and that is you are working hard at Christianity and not wanting Him. I mean, I say it with embarrassment that I do this for a living. And there have been stretches of days before where I have worked on a women's Bible study and a men's Bible study and midday prayer and uh, an order of worship and a sermon. And it sort of hit me several days into it. Have you talked to him just to talk to him? Do you need him? Or is this a professional workbook that generates talks for you? Or is he really bread? Is he really true drink? The bad news is, we're the kind of people that can misuse Jesus. You know what the good news is? He knew that. Died for us. Says it's the Father's will and it's my will to lay down my life for you. I would exhort us, rather than work so hard at Christianity, is to look to Him and believe. And I'll end with this. Uh, A friend of mine that I saw this past week in Memphis, who's a minister, he said his most depressing time of the week is Sunday afternoon. 
because all the second guessing about his crummy sermon begins to just beat him about the head and shoulders. And I said, I can't relate to that at all. I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) Sunday afternoons are awesome and happy for me. He said facetiously. And, And an older man in his life said, do you know what you need to do? He said, when you get through preaching, you need to go back up to your study and you need an older man to sit down with you and remind you how great Jesus is. Just sit with you and say, listen, anything that was wrong with that, Christ fixed it. And everything that's right is right because of Him. And your preaching's not your identity. He's your identity. And He always will be well pleased with you. In other words, you need to go up to your study and eat your bread. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are hungry souls. And you have seen us and will continue to see us eat work and eat family, eat romance, eat discipline, eat exercise, eat music, to eat everything but Christ. We pray that however we are this morning, that you would, by your Spirit, move us toward Him, not away, that we might eat His flesh and drink His blood and have life forever. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.